Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we remember artist Chris Burden, who died on Sunday at age 69. Burden had a remarkable, influential 40-plus year career. He started as a conceptualism-informed performance artist before transitioning in the late 1970s to making fantastic outsized sculptures. Throughout his career, Burden found ways to marry art with big ideas, such as power and risk, and familiar, even simple materials, such as toys. Burden's work has been the subject of dozens of solo exhibitions around the world, including surveys at the New Museum in New York, Magazine 3 in Stockholm, and the Newport Harbor Art Museum. Sites that have featured major installations of individual Burden works include the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, New York's Rockefeller Center as part of a public art front project, the Tate, the Austrian Museum of Applied Arts, and many, many more. Next week, LACMA will present Burden's most recently completed performance sculpture, Ode to Santos Dumont. It opens on May 18th. Today I'll talk with three people about Burden and his work. Los Angeles Times art critic Christopher Knight, LACMA director Michael Govan, and former Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles chief curator Paul Schimmel. On the second segment, which is only sort of the second segment this week, I'll talk with Mariam Ghani. Her work is the subject of a single artist show at the St. Louis Art Museum. It's up through July 12th. It features the debut of Ghani's The City and the City, a half-hour-long multimedia work that examines urban American landscapes. While the piece doesn't specifically address recent events in Ferguson, which is in suburban St. Louis County, or Baltimore, where Ghani grew up, the relationship between those places and the work is evident. But first, Christopher Knight, after the break. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Hundreds of neighborhoods, thousands of historic landmarks, one easy search. That's what the Getty, in partnership with the City of Los Angeles, has created with Historic Places LA, the first online information and management system specifically developed for Los Angeles to inventory, map, and describe its significant cultural resources, from places of social importance and architecturally significant buildings to historic districts and bridges. The system is accessible to everyone, ensuring that the ever-changing city keeps a firm hold on its historic roots. Start your virtual trip to Los Angeles at historicplacesla.org. And we're back. Christopher Knight, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. For you, what was the most important subject or theme in Chris Burden's work? Power. I think it, a lot of his work can be summed up in that word and how it operates in contemporary society, specifically contemporary American society, both personally and aesthetically and socially and politically and if one wants to be crude militarily, the, the operations of, of power are all through the work that, that Chris did. He's in the generation of artists that begins making work during the Vietnam War. How important was, was the war in his early work? 
I think the war is significant in his in his early work, but in a tangential kind of way. It's more like a a context or um, part of the prism through which his work can be seen or experienced. If you look at at a, a performance piece like Shoot, where he had a friend shoot him in the arm with a rifle, that comes in the wake of things like Kent State and uh, the carnage going on in, in Vietnam. And Chris, when he was asked why he would do such a, a seemingly crazy thing as allow someone to shoot him in the arm, simply said, I wanted to know what it would be like, which is a fairly uh, profound observation, a profound thing to to say, because I think he really understood that in a society where carnage is all around but perceived remotely through the media, one has a conceptual idea of what violence is, but he wanted to restore that to a physical body to know what it is. And I think part of that, oddly enough, came out of his interest in Andy Warhol's work, because so much of, of Warhol is about the abstractions created by mediation. When, when I look at something like Doorway to Heaven, the performance where he stuck two live wires into his bare chest and the wires crossed and sent off sparks and he nearly electrocuted himself. I see a, a, a photograph like that, a photograph of that performance, and the first thing I think of is Andy Warhol's electric chairs from a few years earlier. Uh, the electric chairs were made at a time when Chris was in school, when he was a, an undergraduate in, in college. And so the, the, the violence that is addressed so often in, in Chris's work, I think has a lot of different contexts, uh, some of them artistic, some of them social, like the Vietnam War. Do you think the influence of, of the Vietnam era and how he addressed it stays with him and in the work through the rest of his career, or, or does he leave it alone when he transitions out of performance? He definitely does not leave Vietnam alone. I think one of the more extraordinary sculptures that Chris made is a piece called The Other Vietnam Memorial that was done for an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art commissioned by the Museum of Modern Art, an exhibition called Dislocations in 1992, if I'm remembering correctly. And it's a kind of gigantic military industrial Rolodex of names, the names of Vietnamese men and women and children, three million of them who were slaughtered during the war. Those names on, are etched on huge 13-foot-tall copper plates, as if they're printing plates in a way. And because the identities of the actual Vietnamese citizens who were killed is largely unknown, most of the names on this memorial are fabricate, were fabricated by digital means, by a computer in which Chris entered the names of a few thousand uh, Vietnamese that he garnered from a telephone book, and the computer mixed 
list and match them into uh, millions of names. And the piece is incredibly disorienting and moving in a in a way that one doesn't often want to be moved because you're forced to look squarely at the callousness of your own society that produced such a such a horrific situation. And I think the title the title of the piece is really interesting to me because obviously on one level it refers to my lens great Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., uh, which is also an accounting of names, but it's an accounting of names of the American dead. And it's produced in such a way as to offer an opportunity for very deep emotional catharsis. As Maya Lin said, her, her wall is only about loss, just loss after loss after loss. And a lot of the response to Burden's piece when it opened at the Museum of Modern Art was dismay that he wasn't providing the same kind of cathartic response for the Vietnamese. And I think that's a, I think that's almost symptomatic of the kind of, of callousness that allows a war like that to happen. There's a blindness involved. It's too painful to admit how our own society was able to create such a horrific situation. And I think a lot of the critical response was looking for some kind of absolution of guilt, basically, which Chris was hardly going to provide in a work like that. And the other way in which the title resonates for me is that it's a Vietnam memorial about, quote unquote, the other. In any society, if, if a society is going to go to war, then one of the first things that inevitably happens is that the enemy has to be dehumanized. The enemy has to be turned into an object rather than to a living, breathing human being because it is um, horrific to kill a living human being. But if they're objectified and dehumanized, then war becomes possible. And I think Chris's piece really goes right to the core of that, that structure that allows carnage to occur. So in 1979 or thereabouts, Chris Burden transitions from being uh, a performance-oriented conceptualist of a sort to, to making objects, and not small objects, big, really big objects. The key turning point, as you put it in your obituary in the Times, was the big wheel, which is in Mocha's collection. Why do you think Burden started making objects? I think partly he started making objects because doing the kinds of performance work he was doing was pretty brutal on his own body. It was a, a fairly difficult thing to sustain. He had done at least 50 performances in the previous eight years or so, seven or eight years. And he also once said that he was concerned that at some point, if all he did was performances, he would they would begin to be seen as an act. This is the Chris Burden act. Uh, and he didn't want that to happen because it would diminish the, the impact of what he was doing. So when he began to make objects, sculptural objects, the transition, the pivot was to make sculptures that 
need to be performed. They're performance sculptures. Big Wheel is, you know, this enormous three-ton cast iron flywheel that's attached to a motorcycle. And the first time I saw it in a, in 1980 in, at the San Diego Museum of Art in a sculpture survey, a California sculpture survey, it was organized by Richard Armstrong. Chris actually performed the piece in the museum. He climbed on onto the motorcycle and revved it up and backed the motorcycle into the into the giant flywheel, which began to spin. And the it's probably the only time I've ever seen a museum gallery uh, fill up with exhaust smoke from a motorcycle. It was fairly intense. And when that thing began to to roar in the uh, in the space, and then he disengaged the motorcycle and turned it off, and it became silent, there was this immense behemoth, forceful power in the museum that looked like it could either kill you or just mesmerize you into a state of Zen bliss, and it was incredibly powerful. So the the kind of the the interest in power that his performance pieces were about got transferred to these performance sculptures. Is there a relationship between that interest in power and Burden's making work that is literally powerful and Southern California's place and role as a hub of the post World War II defense industry? I think there I think there is uh, clearly a, a connection. His his work is really concerned with embedding itself in as many ways as possible to the world around it. And Southern California's role in the defense industry is, was fairly prominent at the time. It's, it's still somewhat prominent, but not, not nearly as much as it, it was back then. I also think one, one thing that often gets easily overlooked in the evolution of Chris's work is its relationship to the art and technology program that developed at the LA County Museum in the late 1960s. And the the attempt to connect artists with industry, with corporate industry in, in sort of boomtown Los Angeles, one of the primary participants in that project was Robert Irwin. And Irwin was Chris's teacher at UC Irvine and somewhat took him under his wing. So the the connections, I think, run fairly deep. I'm not sure I can think of an artist of Burden's stature whose work is harder for art museums, you know, the place where the most people have the most access to the most art, you know, whose work is harder for art museums to show. Burden Sampson essentially uses a 100-ton jack connected to a gearbox to destroy a space, a gallery. The flying steamroller would make any art museum director really nervous. Do you think that difficulty of access will going forward impact how we think about Burden and his work? I think it has impacted how we think about Burden's work already in the past. <laughs> when I, I love Big Wheel, I think, I mean, as I say, I think Big Wheel is a, a huge turning point in his work, a huge pivot in his work. And I was thrilled to see it in 2013 at the New Museum in New York. The one thing that I missed there was because of city codes in New York, the exhaust from the motorcycle had to be piped out a window so it didn't fill up the gallery. And, you know, that may be a small thing, but I, ju I just, you know, rem remembered so vividly seeing it 
1980 in San Diego in a completely different circumstance. And it's just, you know, it's just a, a sort of given with museums. But I think if an artist's work is important enough, if an artist's work is significant enough, then museums will slowly but surely eventually begin to find ways in which they can accommodate it. And Burden's work is certainly of that kind of significance. The Museum of Contemporary Art in LA now owns Big Wheel, and they've been able to, to accommodate it and, and show it in their warehouse space without any kind of difficulty. It's, it's also, I think, one indication of the power, since we're talking about power, the power of Burden's work or of any great artist's work that in some respects, it forces institutions to change in order to accommodate the art. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And of course, Burden's most famous piece is the one that is in many ways the most institution-friendly thing he ever did, and that's Urban Light at, at the LA County Museum of Art. You've had the chance to, to sort of live with Urban Light for, what, six, seven years now. What makes it work? That that's a, That's a really good question because it's it's an easy it's an easy piece to sort of consider as being too friendly in its way but i think partly chris wanted it to be friendly it, it it's also subversive in a in a slightly odd way it it keeps the lights on at the museum at night when the place is closed the the lights of this temple it, it, it's in the format of a sort of classical Greek temple, all of these these antique street lights. And it keeps the lights burning at night. Chris always said that one one sign of a, a civilized city was it once felt safe at night. And it had never really occurred to me before to connect that thought with the idea of street lamps. That's why they have street lamps, is so one can feel safe at night. And suddenly the street lamps become a signifier of civilization. And I think people just have a, a kind of intuitive uh, response to it. It's, it's like a, a, a moth to the flame. People come to it, which is a very simple idea, but also, again, a very powerful idea. When I visited the piece recently, I noticed that about 15 or 20 feet from Urban Light is a streetlight on Wilshire Boulevard. It is not a, you know, circa 1987 streetlight on Wilshire Boulevard. It's probably a circa 1930s or 1940s streetlight on Wilshire Boulevard, as they all are in front of the L.A. County Museum. It's not exactly like the streetlights in Urban Light, but it's clearly related to them. And it kind of suggested to me that there was, that, that the artist was making a bridge between the city and a museum in, in ways that LACMA now talks a great deal about wanting to make with, with the Peter Zumdor. That's, that's an interesting observation. At, at, the, at the dedication of, of Urban Light, Chris didn't really want to speak, but afterwards he told uh, Michael Govan, the director of LACMA, that he probably should have gotten up and said that he wanted to put the miracle back in the miracle mile, which I thought was really funny. And that, that's another, uh, another aspect of Chris's work that I think is often overlooked, and that is that he could be a really witty guy, a really funny, funny fellow. Christopher Knight, thanks. My pleasure.
My next guest is Los Angeles County Museum of Art director Michael Govan. He was the museum's director when LACMA installed both Urban Light and Metropolis II, both of which remain on view. Michael Govan, welcome to the show. Along with Anish Kapoor's Cloud Gate in Chicago's Grant Park, Urban Light at your museum is the best-known contemporary sculpture in America. How did it end up at LACMA? When I uh, moved to Los Angeles, uh, uh, one of our curators, Stephanie Barron, said, I know you're talking about major public sculpture. You have to see what Chris is doing in Topanga. Uh, he's working with LA Street Lamps. So I hustled up there within, I think, a week of that conversation to talk to Chris and saw that he was assembling these 1920s and 30s street lamps. He had them around his studio in Topanga. I can't remember, there were about 50 of them then. And he had carefully restored each one, painted it gray, re-electrified it. He explained that they were from different cities in Los Angeles, and he had already spent several years collecting them. I think Paul Schimmel can tell you a story about that. And he had been asked by the mock, I think, in Vienna about maybe bringing them to a park in Vienna. And I said immediately, well, they cannot go to Vienna. They have to stay in Los Angeles. We have to work something out. So he visited LACMA soon after, and we started talking about the new building plans and where they might go. And that led to a conversation about how about right up front. He went back to the studio. He made a model and he showed me how they might look in the form of a temple, if you will, in the sense that it's a roof of light, the tall part in the middle rows of colonnades. Of course, those street lamps are mimicking Roman Greek columns anyway, fluted columns. So the idea that they would be reassembled in that sense of a temple, he already knew that he wanted that tight colonnade. And of course, he said he had to make it twice as big <laughs> if it was going to go in the front of LACMA. So the expenses went up, the time went up, and so began the journey to try to get it finished for 2008 when we opened the uh, first part of the transformation campaign, the Broad Contemporary Art Museum. In hindsight, where it is now on Wilshire seems like an obvious thing. Was it then? How was that selected as the site? Yeah, we walked around campus. We looked at a line. There was one idea of a line because there was a very strong line. And then there was this empty plaza. And personally, I didn't like the empty plaza. I had imagined art. I want art. I, my dream was that the image of the museum would be art, not a building. And, and that was the place for it. So it was it did not take long to figure out that these lamps could be figure, configured for for that kind of space. And that was really obvious. Plus, as soon as he showed me the plan, it was easy for me to see how it riffed off the Greco-Roman temple facades that grace every East Coast and Midwest museum. <laughs> so I smiled broadly <laughs> at how our you know, we'd have a faux temple facade, but of course ours was made of real street lamps and theirs are uh, neo-Greco-Roman. And there's another little story about that that's interesting because I had already started to work with Robert Irwin on the Garden of Palm Trees. And immediately he began to use the palm trees in a geometric way so that they felt like columns or architecture. And that, of course, became the delicate issue of of the two works coming together or meeting or potentially conflicting. And, you know, big artists like that getting in close proximity. But I don't know if you know the story, but Robert Irwin 
was on the faculty at Chouinard, and he's the one who argued very strongly that Chris Burton's senior thesis, the famous Locker Project, uh, should pass him. So there was a great respect between the two artists, uh, the older and the younger, Bob Irwin the older, and Chris the younger, and that made it very easy to work together with them on the plaza. I think that might have been in Irvine, but but yeah. But yeah. I think it's pretty rare for a single artwork to have an impact on the museum at which it is installed, but you know, Urban Light sure has. I mean, it, it, it's just kind of astonishing. How would you describe the impact that that piece has had on, on LACMA? Well, again, the, the idea was to reposition LACMA in Los Angeles. I think that there's a sense that it was a, you know, LACMA was, is only 50 years old. It was a late museum. There was a sense both of it bringing a strong art tradition, European art tradition, tra- traditional museum to Los Angeles. And I think that for me, the important thing was to mark LACMA as Los Angeles. And of course, that made it very easy to seize upon the ideas, Chris Burden's idea for Los Angeles street lamps and for Robert Irwin's idea for using palm trees. And so these two elements of the streetscape, of the regular everyday street, streetscape, become formalized as the entrance to the museum. And it's because of the power of their artwork, their abilities, artists like that, that that entrance now works so well and people have identified it as not only LACMA, but as a sign of Los Angeles, which was the hope. Uh, and I, and again, it's all because those are great artists and Chris is a great artist and he knew exactly what he was doing and we gave him the leeway to do his work. In addition to Urban Light, uh, LACMA has, for several years now, devoted prominent space to a second major burden. It's, you know, as rare as it is for a sculpture to, to have an impact on a museum the way Urban Light has, it's pretty rare for a museum to hand over two major spaces to a single artist for many years. How did Metropolis II end up at the museum, and, and why did you, you want it there? So when we were working together on urban light and configuring and thinking about where it would be and bringing it to LACMA in the form you see it now, he was already inside the studio in Topanga sketching out Metropolis 2. He built Metropolis 1. It had 90 cars on it. It was very unreliable and it was hard to operate. And he had this dream of a larger metropolis. <laughs> As everyone has dreamed of a larger metropolis. <laughs> as LA has grown, and uh, his goal was a thousand cars. So, and and as soon as he laid it out in the studio, just the base of it and explained what it was in relation to the other piece, I said, oh my God, that's a portrait of, could be a portrait of Los Angeles. Of course, it's a generic portrait of cities, of urban cities, but it looked a lot like LA to me. So I I sort of put a reserve on it, (laughs) right as we were installing urban light. And sure enough, four years later or whatever it was, he said, I actually saw it in process, but it was finished and it was pretty clear it also had to stay in Los Angeles. So that began that uh, story of of finding someone to acquire it and leave it. It's on long term loan for at least 10 years. That was all we needed at the time. And we set it up in, in on the ground floor, as you know, of the BCAM. And it's been operating ever since. And and just a note to that is as he was Moving that out of the studio, we were talking about his ode to Santos Dumont (laughs) and how he was already several years into that project 
And that was the call I got, you know, about a month and a week ago about the fact that he had finished that work. And so it seemed we should show that at LACMA. So that piece opens at LACMA next week. Could you give people a quick preview of, of, of what, what that is and how people will experience it at the museum? So as you know, Chris is a tinkerer and he works on things for a very long time, things that seem impossible, but he keeps at them. And even Metropolis, you know, it's Metropolis too. Well, Santos Dumont, Alberto Santos Dumont was a Brazilian born, one of the world's most famous pioneer aviators. He was in Paris and he's famous for piloting his airship. I think it was Dumont six uh, from a specific point into Paris around the Eiffel Tower and back. And so that proved that a navigable air travel was possible. That was a great technical achievement because people could fly in balloons and there were early dirigibles, but very subject to the wind, very unreliable. And the question was, how did you lift a human being, the net, the uh, the rudder, the and an engine uh, into the air and control it. And so he, he, for more than anyone, Dumont proved you know human air travel was possible against all naysayers. Chris loved that story. He's used that image in other pieces of an Eiffel Tower and the and um, dirigibles. He's he's made drawings with it, uh, and he finally worked with a guy by the name of John Biggs and got a replica 1903 engine working one quarter scale, and he built his sort of quarter scale dirigible sea airship around that motor. And it was a it was a long, complicated process to get it to work, mimicking, I think, the original experience that Santos Dumont had. And you can kind of see the affinity between these two characters. <laughs> Dumont and Chris Burden uh, so clearly that it's, I, I mean, I think of it in, in moments and think of it as a sort of self-portrait. But, you know, he, he called me when it was done. I had the book that he gave me of the airships of Santos Dumont on my desk for, for the last year and a half and uh, told me it was done. So I saw it and it happened. We had space in the Resnick Pavilion where we had had our 50th anniversary event and before our exhibition of Frank Gehry and it's exactly the space required. So I called him back after I'd seen it and said, let's, let's show it. And it'll be up how long? It's gonna be up for a month. Again, it's a very delicate object. It has a gasoline engine. It's a balloon filled with helium. It will be run for five times a day. And it starts, it opens to the public on on Monday. And it will be up through June 21, I believe. Michael Gavin, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. My next guest is Paul Schimmel. While he was the chief curator at the Newport Harbor Art Museum in the late 1980s, that museum is now known as the Orange County Museum of Art, Schimmel organized the first mid-career survey of Chris Burden's work. Schimmel went on to become the chief curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles, and he's now a partner at what will be Hauserwerth and Schimmel, opening soon in Los Angeles. Paul Schimmel, thanks for talking with me. What is Chris Burden's legacy for American art? You know, I think Chris kind of comes out of that generation of late 19th and early 20th century inventors and you know you think about people like Bell Alexander Graham Bell and the the scientist uh, artist uh, inventor and I think Burden's uh, legacy is one of in a way giving permission to other artists and uh, 
to to go and to investigate uh, works that in some ways are not traditional in, in terms of either performance or sculpture or installation, uh, but have to do with that uh, extraordinary place between science, engineering, facts, and uh, imagination, poetry, and uh, vision. And I think he found that, that very special place between intuition and hard science. So Chris Burden made these big booming pieces, as you kind of just referenced, that are just impossibly large. Motorcycles and steel wheels, steel I-beams falling from cranes and whatnot. But he was really nothing like that in person, was he? No, and, and in fact, I think you know people think of these early performance works as being, in a way, spectacle-oriented. And in fact, they were very hermetic, and they really had as much more to do with self-discovery in a kind of analytic way, uh, a way somebody would work in a kind of laboratory than in sense putting on a display or looking for a kind of sensational uh, effect for its own sake. As you know, much of his early performance work was really only oriented towards the camera and to the recording of this data. And in fact, uh, much of what we think of in terms of his early performance work is in fact uh, down to a very single iconic photograph. And I think in an interesting way, whether it was through a, a simple simple image of him being shot or, or, or crawling through the glass or the massing of all of these, these, these street lamps from all over Los Angeles that Chris had this uncanny ability to discern in a kind of reductive way uh, that which would become iconic. The work itself and not him. In 1988, you gave Chris his first career survey at the Newport Harbor Art Museum. And I'm sure you knew him well before that, of course. And how, how did you two meet? And when did you start thinking about that as a show you wanted to do? Well, I first met Chris in um, 1976 at a time of uh, great transition in his both personal life and in the work itself. Um, he was no longer primarily doing performance-based work, and he was transitioning into a series of, of uh, sculptural works that investigated uh, the speed of light, uh, the B car, and ultimately works like Samson, and a whole body work that, that, that really was the, the kind of the second phase of his life. Um, I was... Uh, you know, for for anyone growing up in the early 70s, uh, Chris was somebody so astonishingly well-known from his very earliest uh, performances as a graduate student. And he was, in many respects, a, a hero of mine uh, long before I had a chance to, to meet him. At the time I met him, I was visiting with the uh, curator of the Long Beach Museum at that time, the deputy director, David Ross. And I was uh, traveling with an artist friend of mine, John Alexander, who became very close to Chris. And uh, John was kind of a um, a wild man uh, himself, although it wasn't uh, reflected in any kind of performance work, but uh, always liked to kind of go out there in extremes and 
And the first time I met Chris, he and John were um, becoming uh, excited by uh, helicopters flying over Venice Beach in California, searching for some somebody with a an overhead spotlight, trying to catch some some criminal. And John and and Chris took this as an opportunity to to go run out in the street and sort of. Uh, play with the law. Everyone else was hiding inside and they, they went out and I thought, hmm, this is, this is some kind of uh, scary sort of guy. And I, going, uh, John, why, why are you encouraging Chris to go out there? And I was a little worried that he might even uh, be armed or something that would get him into trouble. But the next time I really got to know him well was after I moved to uh, Orange County to become the uh, uh, chief uh, curator of the then Newport Harbor Art Museum. And Chris was on my very short list of must-do exhibitions of California artists. Not only was he already uh, extraordinary and a giant, but it seemed to me on two accounts. One, that so much was focused on the very earliest performance work, and already there was a sense of of uh, who is this Chris Burden as a sculptor and installation artist, the creator of environments? And secondly, and I thought of equal importance, was the uh, important period in his development, his gestation, that took place in Orange County. It was clear to me then, as it is even today, that there was no more significant artist to have come out of uh, UCI, University of California, Irvine, and that as a graduate student, having uh, done work such as the five-day locker piece or shoot, uh, these these extraordinary works that were, in a way, heard all over the world uh, made him an obvious choice to, to work with. Newport, which was uh, somewhat more uh, conservative, was a little concerned uh, about uh, this exhibition their memory of having uh, uh, first heard of uh, of Chris when Tom Garver had uh, brought him in to do a performance uh, in the early 70s involving uh, taking um, matches and throwing them on uh, a bale of hay in the middle of the museum. And as one of the trustees said, yes, uh, uh, there was uh, Chris's hay in the middle of a wooden structure, the old boathouse down in Newport Beach. But uh, more importantly, there were all of the uh, loans from the uh, previous uh, Mark Rothko exhibition still in storage. And uh, and uh, that kind of institutional confrontation made somewhat of a, a challenge, and we really needed to uh, develop both the uh, resources and the support for a, a major touring exhibition, which did come to fruition uh, in, in, in 1987. And it was through the process of working on that exhibition that when every day Chris was living in a very beautiful tent with uh, Nancy Rubens. They uh, they lived a kind of uh, kind of almost I- idyllic uh, life with uh, nature in the most simple of ways. And then there was this 1,000 foot long extension cord that was the telephone line. <laughs> that if it didn't get eaten by the by the rodents, we would be able to have our quote, daily conversation 
which really has continued for these last uh, 35 years and has been, you know, maybe the sun shining every day of my life. So what was Chris working on when, when he passed away? Well, the last piece that he had brought to absolute completion is this uh, dirigible, and uh, I think will be on view uh, in the coming weeks at uh, LACMA. And it was a piece that uh, began with him commissioning this very elegant single-cylinder engine, and it was from there that an armature was created using uh, erector sets, feeling not unlike the B car, uh, all suspended below a, a large um, inflatable, which uh, is powered by this uh, engine and a, a rather large and very sort of slowly rotating uh, uh, propeller. And uh, the first time it got set up and it was in a, an airplane hangar just north of uh, Oxnard, you realize the beauty of it was was not that somehow it had been created through the the kind of uh, uh, specific and uh, computer driven numbers, but there was a combination of uh, basic science informed as and, and Chris's to Chris's great delight by his own sort of sense of what would work, and that though the tolerances for its success were very narrow. He somehow intuited and understood, I, I think almost in a way through his own body, the, the, what was needed to make this, this beautiful piece which floats at a human gait in a circular fashion. That, that was the last work he had completed. However, what he, he was working on was in a sense a gathering of of some of the most significant monumental sculptures, including the Rockefeller centerpiece, What My Father Gave to Me, a, 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 an erector set structure that you could actually climb up, the uh, piece related to the plinth in uh, Trafalgar Square, uh, several beehive bunkers, and a, a row of uh, lights. And this, this gathering of of much of the important works of this last decade uh, was under the um, vision of his his Xanadu, and the last thing he he was doing was uh, creating a uh, a very detailed and accurate three dimensional model. A man who had made models in a sense throughout his whole life, a three dimensional model of how the topography of this installation could be realized in a park-like setting and to understand uh, the relationship of the viewer, uh, them walking through it, and uh, these large-scale uh, these large scale sculptures. Indeed, I think as a surprise to many of us who, who knew Chris so well, he became in the latter part of his life uh, somebody who managed to create works of art that transcended the art world and the specialization of uh, engineering and science and instead became places that uh, really, uh, in, 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 a, in a community that seems without a center, without a sense of place and without a history, Urban Lights provided that in, in a way that maybe even institutions can't do in Los Angeles.
did he have a site for Xanadu lined up? Oh, he he had considered a number of different uh, sites, and and I think originally uh, some of the concepts were developed around the uh, the lot across the street from LACMA. But I think in the end, uh, the, it 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 is without a site, and it could be anything from uh, from well maybe his something very private like in T Topanga on his own property. Topanga Canyon uh, to uh, something uh, much more uh, uh, public and uh, accessible, but the um, the marching orders uh, of his legacy, I think, is to see uh, Xanadu realized. Paul Schimmel, thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Having recently completed a major renovation of its Tatawando design building, the Pulitzer Arts Foundation is now open with three exhibitions, Calder Lightness, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces, and Fred Sandback 64 three-part pieces. On view through September 12th, the exhibitions offer visitors unique opportunities to experience the artist's works. The Pulitzer's expansive, light-filled upper level provides an ambiance that animates Calder's hanging mobiles and offers multiple vantage points from which to view these iconic works. In its first exhibition since 1975, Sandback's 64 three-part pieces makes a U.S. debut in one of the Pulitzer's new galleries, with a different sculpture presented every week. Installed by the artist himself, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces provides a rare opportunity to see a large concentration of these works from 1972. For more details on the exhibitions, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Habsburg Splendor, Masterpieces from Vienna's Imperial Collections, showcasing masterworks assembled over five centuries of empire building by Europe's longest reigning dynasty. The exhibition of some 100 objects from Vienna's Kunsthistorisches Museum is on a national tour this year and opens June 14th at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Habsburgs for more. Welcome back. My next guest is Mariam Ghani. Her work has been exhibited widely in international annuals, such as Documenta and the Sharjah Biennial, and venues such as Creative Time have commissioned her work. Now the St. Louis Art Museum is showing Ghani in one of their so-called Currents shows. Those are solo exhibitions given to mid-career artists. The show features several Ghanis, including the 2014 video Like Water from a Stone and a new work Ghani made while in residence at Washington University in St. Louis titled The City and the City, uses China Mieville's sci-fi detective noir novel of the same title as a way of examining unnamed but plainly hinted at fractures and segregations within a modern-day urban environment. Here's an audio clip from the video. The voice you hear belongs to St. Louis artist and activist Derek Laney, and the conceit of the video is that his narration is that of a dead man. Do you know anything about my city? Like most cities, it believes itself to be its own country, with its own laws and borders and customs. But unlike, perhaps, your city, it has made that belief into reality. Like many cities that appear to be one city or one country, it's actually two. Some cities are divided by a river or a train track. Some cities are zoned green and red with concrete barricades marking the difference. Some cities have borders that constantly shift following the whims of capital. Some cities like my city are crosshatched, some places totally ours and others belonging wholly to them. 
Places where spurs of one city jut unexpectedly into the other. Places where the cities are so densely interwoven that you can step from one to the other by crossing a single square of pavement. And the decency, the spaces claimed by both or neither cities, which exist in a kind of limbo between them. My city and its other had, in a past century, formalized their non-relations, ignoring their territorial integrity in favor of a political separation. To pass officially from here to there, you had to cross the bridge to nowhere, a span with an unusual kink. Mariam Ghani, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me on. The city and the city is both about St. Louis and in no small way, really, about every American city that's more than, you know, 50 or 60 years old. Just to give listeners a little grounding in the moment of the piece being made, the work opened at the St. Louis Art Museum in, in, in April of this year, April of 2015. Were you in the process of making it when a white cop in suburban Ferguson shot Michael Brown, a young black man, and during the ensuing protests? I, at that point, I knew that I was going to make a project in St. Louis because I had uh, received this fellowship, the Freud Fellowship, which is a joint residency between Washington University in St. Louis and the St. Louis Art Museum, but I hadn't yet decided what I was going to make in St. Louis. So uh, my plan was to go there for the entire month of October to make the project. And of course, October ended up, October 2014, ended up being Ferguson October, a month of many, many protests and a certain amount of unrest uh, in St. Louis, but also of a lot of really extraordinary images coming out of the activist movement. Did what happened in Ferguson, and I mean the protests as much as the initial shooting, inform what you ended up doing there? Did it, did it guide you? Did it, what would the word there be? Well, I think I certainly couldn't ignore it. Uh, and I think it would have been impossible for an artist like me to come to St. Louis and make work in St. Louis and ignore what had just happened there. But I think also, I was always going to make a project about the spatial politics of St. Louis. Uh, and the spatial politics of St. Louis are inextricable from the racial politics of St. Louis. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. The narrator of, of, of the piece is a gentleman named Derek Laney. Who was he and did you meet him at Ferguson? Uh, I met Derek through the activist platform Connected for Justice, and specifically through Dee Nichols, who founded Connected for Justice and United Story, um, which have been pretty important platforms to come out of the activist movement. And when I met Dee, who is also involved in the arts, uh, she works at the Contemporary Art Museum, um, I met Dee and I asked her, do you know anybody who's an activist and has a really good voice? Uh, she immediately <laughs> said, Derek. Uh, and Derek actually is one of the activists who was involved in the action at the St. Louis Symphony, where they interrupted the symphony to sing a requiem for Mike Brown. Um, so uh, he really does have a pretty fantastic voice. <laughs> and um, He's not afraid to use it. So I met with Derek and I pitched him the project and he immediately said, I love this idea. I love sci-fi. I love mysteries. Uh, and I think this is just a great way to talk about St. Louis. Um, and um, I also told him that when I'd been shooting in the fall, because at this point I'd already shot most of the footage, I had used uh, the image of the mirrored coffin that had been carried in the protests. Um, 
and I had sort of uh, shifted it into this this image of the the murdered body in the film, which is only ever seen as a series of shattered mirrors, which is inspired by the mirrored coffin from the protests. And uh, Derek and Dee actually are two of the people who made the mirrored coffin. Uh, so uh, having them involved in the film felt like kind of getting a benediction for the, the use of that image. So we've set up the context in which um, you, you made the piece and you just mentioned quickly that it's loosely based on a detective sci-fi noir <laughs> novel <laughs> by the British author China Mieville. What makes a book rooted in that mix of genres, if rooted is, is the right word, it's probably not, what makes that mix of stuff a good way into um, a, a segregated, a city that's segregated by, by race, um, economics, and other things like, like modern-day St. Louis? Well, the premise of The City in the City, the novel, is that there are these two cities which are geographically intertwined but have become politically, economically, and spiritually so divided that they actually become separate countries. Uh, but because they're kind of cross-hatched together physically, the way this separation is enforced on a day-to-day -day basis is that the citizens of the two city-states learn from birth to unsee everything and everyone that belongs to the other city. So they learn to identify very quickly everything that's other and then look away from it so reflexively it's like it's not even there. And... I mean, this is a marvelously flexible allegory for the way that so many cities work. And in a way, it's not really science fiction at all. <laughs> like, but because it's also a noir and it begins with a murder, and then in the course of the investigation into the murder, you kind of travel through all the sort of fundamental structures of this world and a lot of weird little pockets of it as well. And then you kind of question, the, the detective kind of questions these structures and... Uh, eventually, many of them end up being breached. Uh, I thought it was a really good way to kind of talk about St. Louis and this particular moment in St. Louis without explicitly talking about it. It's also a framework that allows uh, for, you know, delving into some of the deeper structures and deeper histories that underpin the specific moment. And, and and one of the ways you do that is is your camera goes to lots of sites throughout the city and, and really the city and the county. Um, St. Louis City and St. Louis County are, are two separate municipal entities. What are some of the sites um, that you include in the piece, um, and why do you choose? Why did you choose those sites? Well, sites were chosen for a couple different reasons. And uh, some of them were chosen because they seem to be St. Louis equivalents of what Mayville in his book calls dissenti, which are these disputed zones or liminal zones, which are claimed by both or neither cities. Uh, and um, others were chosen because they play a role in really specific St. Louis histories. For example, uh, Pruitt-Igo, which was this, um, you know, it's this famously failed housing complex, um, which was... Yeah, demolished. In, Which was blown up, yeah. Yeah, it was demolished in the 70s. And now it's this kind of amazingly uh, wild and beautiful urban forest in the middle of the north side of St. Louis. That artists seem to have found. Mary Miss did a walk there last year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there have been a lot of proposals for 
interesting things to do with this plot of land. But of course, it's actually all owned by a single property developer, the same person who owns a lot of the vacant land on the north side. Uh, so all of those proposals are lovely, but, you know, it, they're very unlikely to come to fruition. And uh, that's true of many of the proposals that have been made for vacant land on the north side, because all this land is actually being warehoused by a single person um, who occasionally does interesting things with it, like leasing it for urban farming. <laughs> but, um, mm. uh, and then you'll see these fields of corn or squash just sort of suddenly pop up for a season um, and then go away again. Uh, but, you know, these sort of things are really interesting to me. The questions of like how land goes through these cycles of um, use, disuse, reuse, um, adaptation, ad adaptive uses. Um, so the north side, for that reason, um, the land around Pruitt-Igo, um, and then uh, also, you know, places like this skate park underneath King's Highway, um, mm. next to the Metrolink uh, railway. King's Highway is a north-south route um, along the west side of the city. Yes. And uh, that's also, you know, it's surrounded by these abandoned warehouses. Um, so warehouses that actually used to be part of the industrial history of St. Louis. And there's all these structures that were built uh, around that particular part of King's Highway to support the um, specific commuting patterns of the workers at those factories, which, of course, now are completely you know, out of use and mostly chained up or boarded up or fenced up. So that's fascinating to me. These, these structures that were built for really specific purposes and the purposes are gone. Um, or um, Kinlock, which is, you know, was the oldest uh, incorporated black settlement in um, the county. Uh, and that's a really kind of tragic story where um, the uh, St. Louis Lambert Airport was planning an expansion at a certain point in the 20th century. And so the city started buying up lots all over Kinlock and demolishing the houses on them. And when they'd gotten through about half of Kinlock, suddenly the expansion was canceled and there was Kinlock half demolished. So that's right next door to Ferguson, actually. So the reason I asked about, about sites is because I think that St. Louisans will recognize a lot of those places, maybe almost all of them. Uh, but I think that people not from there will recognize zero of them. Right. So, I mean, there's no, you know, the arch is not evident. There is no Anheuser-Busch brick anything. Um, this is obviously a conscious decision. So why did you choose um, to turn away from the familiar? Well, I think for me, I was really interested in places that have a strong emotional association or a strong kind of history attached to them more than places that have a kind of um, visual familiarity or that can kind of be immediately recognized through a series of visual codes. So, you know, my longtime collaborator, Aaron Kelly, the choreographer that I've been working with um, for nine years on this series, Perform Places, is actually from St. Louis. She's fourth generation St. Louis. Um, so um, I had a kind of cheat sheet for this kind of stuff in Aaron um, and her kind of extended network in St. Louis. And so I think, you know, that's part of what led me to these less obvious places and um, another really important person for me was uh, Michael Allen, who runs the Preservation Research Office um, in St. Louis. Um, it's kind of architectural historian. 
who also, you know, suggested a number of places to look at and think about in terms of like uh, signposts of uh, St. Louis's architectural history and, you know, gave me a lot of context for where they fell both in architectural history and in the larger patterns of urban development of St. Louis city and county. So, you know, I really wanted to think about things like, um, you know, where these particular places belonged in larger stories about how the development of the city and the county uh, interacted with questions around race and around politics and around economics. Um, so I was thinking about things like that. There's always a lot of research <laughs> behind <laughs> behind my my choices um, uh, when I'm when I'm filming. So you mentioned a moment ago that uh, the metaphor of mirrors um, and cross hatching in an urban environment that is, you know, really applicable to, to St. Louis or, or a number of other American cities was uh, something that you pulled out of, of uh, Mieville's novel. And it's, it's kind of easy to understand how, how a writer can make those metaphors work in, in, in type, in print. And without giving anything away, I don't want to ask you to kind of give, um, give away the, the plot of, the, of, of how you, certain things unfold on the screen. But it, that's kind of a harder idea to translate to, to visuals. How did you think through how to extend those metaphors from the page uh, onto a screen? Well, the process of seeing and unseeing is represented in the film through these kind of um, geographical folds and, and restitching uh, of, the, of the actual geography of St. Louis where places that very clearly are not actually geographically proximate are sort of folded into each other and then they're actually composited together and you have this this kind of motion effects that that dissolve one into the other or that overlay little pieces of one into the other so that they're kind of like floating in but like only in the the peripheral vision of, of something that's passing through the frame um, so it, it was actually quite a tricky thing to, to figure out how to represent visually. And there was a lot of conversation between, um, me and, uh, Morris McGreeth, who, who helped with the motion effects, uh, on this piece about exactly how it would work visually, this kind of process that's talked about in the text. And there's a kind of balance that had to be struck between representing it visually enough to explain it to people and at the same time not representing it so much that people could actually take it for pure science fiction because you know the process of seeing and unseeing isn't really a science fiction process it's something that people do um just of their own will so <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to give away what happens visually or in the narration, but it, it really works. It really is effective. You can feel what you do and what you hear um, happening on your eyes as you're watching. Um, there is, you're, you are conscious of your body's physically responding to it. So, so we've been talking about how, how this piece is, is, you know, was physically made in St. Louis, but could 
stand in for any one of a number of cities in America or elsewhere. You grew up in suburban Baltimore in, in the 1980s and 90s. Did what you know about that place then um, inform the making of, of this piece last year and this year? Yeah, well, I actually grew up in Baltimore proper. That's, that's oh. those, um, you know, New York Times not fact-checking things. I grew up in a part of Baltimore that is one of the oldest parts of Baltimore, but I was going to a Baltimore public school where there was actually busing. Um, when I was growing up in Baltimore, there was still busing in the public schools because that's how segregated Baltimore was. So I think from a very young age, we were all aware of the divisions in the city and uh, how much they were actually connected to the spatial grid of the city. I think that was a very clear thing to all of us from a very, very young age. And it was made completely manifest, like just as soon as you learn to drive, for example, it was perfectly clear. And even earlier, it was made clear by this phenomenon of busing, which started actually in sixth grade, um, the busing started. So uh, I think it was something I was always pretty hyper aware of. And when I came to St. Louis, one of the first things that I thought was, wow, this city is so much like Baltimore. <laughs> Um, and it's, uh, there's also that funny thing where when people ask, where did you go to school in St. Louis, they mean, where did you go to high school? Um, which is exactly the same as Baltimore. Yeah. <laughs> That's just the same thing in Baltimore because it's a way of placing people in a specific social hierarchy. And yeah, I think it was something that really helped me actually with, uh, being able to understand how to make a project in St. Louis. Uh, having this kind of experience of Baltimore, which does function in a lot of similar ways. I think if I hadn't grown up in Baltimore, I would have had a much harder time with St. Louis. You mentioned a moment ago um, a New York Times story from which I took a mistake. It's written by, by Liz Robbins, and you told her, quote, being in the diaspora, and the diaspora of which you are speaking is, is being between the United States and Afghanistan, um, but also going back and forth between countries, being in one country, but identifying emotionally with another, growing up with these wars going on in my parents' country and never feeling completely detached from that. Um, you said that I think the place I identify most with is the border. Um, does the city and the city, which really is overwhelmingly about borders, come out of a little bit of biography too, out of that particular experience you had with borders? Well, I think I'm always very attentive to borders and border zones and liminal spaces and barricades and all of those kinds of phenomena because of how I grew up and this particular kind of state of in-betweenness in which I grew up. Those are things that have always fascinated me. And I think when I first read The City in the City, the novel, uh, I was actually in Kabul at the time, uh, and I thought, wow, this could be about Kabul, uh, about the way that it's two different cities for Afghans and for expats, uh, which isn't actually true so much anymore, but it was very much true at the time in the in the late 2000s. So that's one of the reasons why the novel, you know, stuck with me so much was because at the time that I read it, I was really in a place where I felt it was very real. Uh, and I think I've had a lot of experiences in my life of cities 
that do operate in that way, not only in the United States, but elsewhere as well. And I think I've always said that this kind of borderline position in which, you know, children of exiles or people who grew up in the diaspora inevitably find ourselves uh, is is not such a bad place from which to make art. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to play you out with a sound loop that is included in the uh, installation at the St. Louis Art Museum. Um, Before uh, I say goodbye, could you set up that sound loop? Sure. So uh, in the installation at the St. Louis Art Museum, you see the film. You also see seven photographs of places that are included in the film, but given their real names uh, rather than the kind of fictionalized uh, histories or settings that they're given in the film. And then you also see this seven channel sound installation where there are seven different speakers found in seven different thrift stores around St. Louis. They all look very different and sound quite different. They're on a seven level pedestal. And basically playing through those speakers is a, uh, a sort of 12 minute loop of um, people from different parts of the city and county, uh, different ages, different races, different genders, different classes, who I invited to perform an open-ended sound script about their relationships to the city and particularly to public space in the city. And as I understand it, uh, it's seven channels at St at the St. Louis Art Museum, and we're going to hear a stereo version. Exactly, yes. Great. Miriam Ghani, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm a mother, wife, grandmother, great-grandmother, and a nurse. I am Hope. I live in a city. Maybe you know it, maybe not. We call our patch of it. We call our patch of it. We call my patch of it south side. We call our patch of it. We call my hood. We call our patch of it Northside, a.k.a. Call our patch of it Bevo. We call our patch of it home. I have lived here eight or nine years. I have lived here for 49 years. I have lived here all my life. I have lived here. I've lived here most of my life. I have lived here already for too long. I have lived here all my life. I have lived here my whole life. I would, I would say, say I know it, it in, in my, my own, own way. way. Different from yours, but also similar. We each, we each inhabit, inhabit our own cities within cities. Within cities. Sometimes, Sometimes they overlap, but not always. Sometimes, Sometimes we brush each other in passing, or hear other voices at a distance. distance. As if from other rooms. Houses are close together. You hear your neighbors in the next room. When I was younger, make friends. If you're an outsider, you don't make friends. Who cover their scars with material things and faith? My city is a fragmented place. My city is a battlefield. My city is a war. My city is a broken engine. My city is a joke. My city is a box. My city is a mixed bag. My city is a collection of various lives. My city is segregated. My city is in transition. My city is a dysfunctional home. My city is a My city is a small but dangerous environment. My city is a small. My city is a war zone in a place of economic and racial despair. My city is a tranquil My city is a nice place. My city is a piece of art. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.